This is The Fall Line. On this special episode of The Fall Line, we speak with friend of the show, Anthony Redgrave. If you keep up with true crime news, then you've likely seen Anthony on TV. He was a lead researcher in the oldest Doe case solved by forensic genealogists who were working with law enforcement. At the time, Anthony was a volunteer for the DNA Doe Project, and the team he describes in the interview was created and managed by that organization. Anthony has since moved on to other genealogical work. The victim in question has been known as the Clark County John Doe, the Torso in the Cave Doe, and Buffalo Cave Doe. His partial remains were discovered in Buffalo Cave, Idaho in 1979, and he had long been assumed to be a fairly recent homicide victim. Through the work of a number of forensic anthropologists, scientists, and genealogists, all volunteering their time via the DNA Doe Project, the Clark County John Doe was recently identified. Normally, that would be where the story ends a person given back their name, and a family-delivered resolution. But this was no ordinary case. In our interview, Anthony delves into the life of the man we now know as Joseph Henry Loveless. Henry, who went by his middle name, also used the alias Walter Carnes and left a trail of confusing biographical information that took months to unpack. His habitual criminal offenses and frequent moves added another complicating factor. As the team slowly narrowed in their identification on Loveless, they learned that, in addition to being a victim, he was also the perpetrator of a violent crime, the death of his wife, Agnes, and there may have been more. Anthony and the rest of the team are still piecing together a full picture of the life and death of Henry Loveless, but he was kind enough to make time to chat with the fall line about the discovery and what it means for the future of forensic genealogy. Could you tell us a little bit about the work you do as a genealogist volunteer for the DNA Doe Project? Sure. Um, It's very similar to how someone would go about doing OPTI or for an NPE, which is is an abbreviation for not the parent expected or non-paternity event, depending on who you ask, uh, somebody who doesn't know who one of their parents is. It's very similar to that, except in this case, we don't have the ability to ask the person where they were born or what their name is or anything because they're deceased. So it's basically doing the same thing as an adoptee search, but on hard mode because we have an added unknown element. And in some ways that makes it easier to deal with. And in some ways it makes it harder in in the sense like, It gives me some bearings to say it that way because I have a a point of reference. So the work that we do is that we, after the, uh, after a a DNA sample has been processed into, into the point where it can be used in GEDmatch, it's uploaded and then we get that kit number. And using that as a reference, we can get a list of all of the genetic cousins of that person. And we use a process called triangulation, which you can either do with an entire person or or segments of their DNA. And what that means is that you have you have your one unknown, and then if you find two more or more people who you know where they came from and you trace their family trees and find their common ancestor, you can assume that the unknown person, your your John or Jane Doe, 
probably comes from the same place as those people, either that same ancestor or one a generation before or after, depending on how much they share. And if you can see where the DNA matches, you can be even sure of that. So you do that a whole bunch of times, and the more common ancestors you get, the more puzzle pieces you get. And it's basically like putting a person together out of, out of a puzzle made of other people, uh, which sounds crazy, but when you actually visualize it, it makes more sense. <laughs> um, and so this process, we're averaging about uh, two and a half months to solve. So after about two and a half months, we eventually get all these pieces together. We find all these common ancestors and all these people who descend from them. And by uh, process of elimination of anybody who could fit the description of that doe and who is a descendant of those people who's unaccounted for, eventually we, we find the right ID. Wow. So I would love to get into talking with you about the Clark County John Doe. How did you come across this case? Well, um, my wife, Lee Bingham Redgrave, and I are friends with Dr. Amy Michael at the University of New Hampshire through our work with the Trans Doe Task Force. And she had previously worked on this case when she was at Idaho State University. So when... Uh, when we started talking about the DNA Doe project and the different kind of cases that we've worked on, she thought about this case and brought it up. And uh, we ended up helping her get it into the system that way. We, uh, we directed her to Dr. Press and Dr. Fitzpatrick and started the process of getting Clark County John Doe into the DNA Doe project. So the way that I came across it specifically was that we, my my wife and I were uh, guest lecturing at one of Amy's classes and she had some slides about the case in the lecture that we were a part of and that was the first we'd heard about it, it was fascinating and so we were very happy to get involved with it you know Amy is a friend of the show for us too and I actually didn't know that she brought it to you that's amazing mm-hmm so speaking of people working together, we know these projects, especially these large-scale identification projects, are team efforts. Can you tell me about who was involved in working on the case and what their roles were? Well, first off, I'd like to mention that Dr. Amy and her colleague, Dr. Samantha Blatt, were both embedded on the team with us as the anthropologists who had worked on the case. And that's something we'd, ever, we'd, we'd never actually done before for a DNA Doe project case. We never had straight up anthropologists on a case with us. And that was incredibly helpful because the genealogists could come to them and ask questions of, oh, this person was born in this year. Does that match up with when they were found? This person has this physical characteristic. Does that match up with your findings? And it was, it was really, really helpful. Um, so that, that was new for all of us and we really greatly appreciated. We also have a number of volunteers who are really good at searching old newspapers, and that was absolutely invaluable for this case, as as you may already know. Um, and we also have one volunteer who, several volunteers actually, but one really pulled ahead of the pack, who was incredibly good at uh, Y-DNA comparisons. And given that we had some pretty close matches and we had some surnames, but we couldn't determine necessarily which side was which because of some uh because of the age actually we'll get we'll get into that um and uh so dr gregory magoon of uh full genomes corporation and, and aerodyne research he 
managed to pull the YSTRs out of the full genome sequence, which we'd actually never tried to do before. And using that, our volunteers uh, managed to identify a patrilineal surname. And that was also something that we hadn't tried to do as as a team before. Um, other than that, like we we all have different strengths, but those those were the th- those those were the showstoppers for me personally. That I I love my whole team. My whole team is amazing, but those two uh, little like subgroups were absolutely invaluable. How many people generally volunteer on a case? It varies by team. Um, every team leader has their own preference of how many team members they want to have on a case. I prefer to have really large teams. Like my largest team right now is probably 25 people. And that's, that's big, but it depends on who's interested in working on it, what their skill sets are, how complicated it is and what the team leader wants. And, and, and how much time they can, and how much time the, the case goes on for too. Cause I tend to acquire more members as we go, as I need people. Um, because it's, it's a volunteer organization. People will, um, use the time that they have and they may wander off for a little while and I might need to bring somebody else in. My average, I think for team size is probably somewhere between 10 and 14. There were 14 people in Clark County, John Doe, and that's, that's about normal for me. Getting into what I think was really exciting for people who read about this case. When did you first realize that the Clark County John Doe was much older than you'd anticipated? Well, that was really fascinating and a lot of fun for us. Um, and, you know, by fun, I mean, oh, fun. <laughs> but um, so there's this tool that we use called What Are the Odds? It's available on DNA Painter, which is my absolute favorite website for any purpose ever. Um, uh, it's uh, just dnapainter.com. It's it's uh, a chromosome browser tool, but it has some other some other little little doodads you can play with. So what are the odds is a conditional probability tool where you can build out uh, sort of a backwards family tree. You start with the common ancestor, you build down from there to the DNA matches and you put in the, the amount of shared material that they have with the person you're trying to ID. And based on the amount shared and their distance to the common ancestor, it combines the probability of all the different people in that tree to tell you where the most likely place to look for the person you're trying to ID is. I mean, this is typically used for adoptees um, to try to ID their parents. Um, in this case, we're using it the same way for, for a doe. And so as we were doing this, we ended up with dozens of genetic cousins that came from this, this one family. And as we added more and more, the tool became more and more certain of where in that probability tree that we would find him. And it kept insisting that it would be someone who was born somewhere in the second half of the 19th century. And we'd never seen that before. And we thought something was wrong. (laughs) We thought it was broken or something because we'd never seen this before. And, um, but, but I really, I, I went with it. I, I tested it out and we kept putting in more people and it kept getting more and more sure until there was only one place where it said that we would find him. And we checked all, all the, all the pedigrees of all the matches to make sure they were spot on. 
and it was really insistent on this one spot, this grandchild of this one person. And so, but that person had like hundreds of grandchildren because this was, um, this was a descendant of Mormon pioneers. So, uh, members of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints during the middle of the 19th century, uh, practiced polygamy. And so there are plenty of people who had several wives and had several children with each of those wives. So we have one guy with 14 children and each of his 14 children, therefore can have the opportunity to have at least 14 more children. (laughs) So we had hundreds of possibilities for this one spot, but still it was still insisting that we were going to find him, uh, being really old. And, um, it, uh, we we knew it was a possibility going in, but we didn't think it was that likely. So when that started happening, when we started seeing that with the probability tool, it was uh, really surprising and, and exciting. How old had his remains originally been assumed to be? That is really interesting. His remains were originally thought to be really old by the original coroner. There's a, there's a thing in the... It wasn't the coroner. It was uh, there was something in an early report where I think it was the original sheriff. Um, the original sheriff thought that he might have been the remains of an old gambler some sixty years ago. This was in nineteen seventy nine. Um, but when the but but when his remains were examined and they were asked for well, when his remains were examined by the coroner and they were asked for a, a PMI a post mortem interval, he said that it was probably somewhere between uh, six months to five years. The remains were so well-preserved. Like, there was still a smell. There was still a lot of soft tissue. He was basically mummified. Um, and he looked like he would be that fresh. When his remains were examined again later on by the, uh, by the anthropologist at the Smithsonian, uh, Dr. Douglas Ubelacker, he was very hesitant to give a post-mortem interval because he had seen remains in this condition before that were a hundred years old. There's a condition called adipocere or, or grave wax. And it under certain environmental conditions, a body can be preserved really, really well for a really, really long time. And that's what happened here. Um, the cave is, is perfect conditions for this kind of preservation. It stays pretty much 55 degrees, I went in there. It was really comfortable. It was like 17 degrees outside or less. I don't remember, but I went in there. I was comfy. Um, part of the cave is used as, was used as a civil defense cave during, during the Cold War. It was being set up as a bomb shelter. And there's these cardboard boxes full of emergency rations that look like they were placed there yesterday, but the date on the side of the box is from the 70s. Wow. And it's just perfect. So that's uh, another large part of why there wasn't a really good way of giving an exact estimate of of when he was placed there. Um, So the conservative estimate was somewhere around five years. But Dr. Ubelacker was basically very hesitant to give an estimate at all and was asked to anyway. And we knew that going in and we tried to not uh, take it too much to heart. But you can't help it. I mean, it's just so out there. So in terms of identification, you mentioned there were 
a hundred something grandchildren. Did you have other candidates before you settled on Henry Lovelace? Yes, we had several other candidates. We had at least three that I can think of off the top of my head right now that we were really interested in. Um, you know, everybody's got a black sheep in the family and everybody's got somebody that they lose track of. When you have hundreds of possible IDs, you're going to find a couple of them. We had a few people that we couldn't find exact death dates for. And that's the sort of thing that we look for. Because if you can't 100% to con- confirm the date of someone's death, you know, they, they, they might be the remains in the case. So we had a couple of candidates that descended from the same families that would have also fit the bill, but they ended up not being the ID. We eventually did find confirmation of what happened to them or, um, or they got ruled out by other genetic cousins making it so that they wouldn't actually match. Because the other thing we can do is if we find somebody who's uploaded their DNA and they don't match someone, then we know that's not where to look. And that's how we ruled out some other people too. So I think one of the most fascinating aspects of this entire story is just who Henry Lovelace was and what his life was like. How did you learn his backstory, especially the parts that concerned criminal activity and violence? That was a huge team effort. Like I said earlier, we have a lot of people on the team who are really good at doing old newspaper searches. Um, So the first thing we found was the newspaper article about Henry's wife being murdered by uh, J.C. Smith or Walt Cairns, depending on which article you read. Um, At that time and going forward, no one had connected those names to Henry Lovelace. They thought they were completely different people. But our research team took a look at all of these newspaper articles we were finding on the case and things about Henry Lovelace's own criminal activity and started to discover that Henry Lovelace himself didn't have a proper alibi for when that happened. And given the physical descriptions and the patterns and his use of, of, uh, of aliases before then, it just all started to add up. And the... And, and we made a timeline of all of the all the newspaper articles and facts about his life and his amazing journey of all the really questionable things that he did. And logically, it makes sense that he continued to descend. <laughs> and so that's how we ended up with uh, this huge, huge timeline of, of his history history. Um, what really sealed the deal was when we found the wanted poster. The wanted poster for Walt Cairns has a clothing description on it that matches the clothing that Clark County John Doe was wearing when he was found in the case. Now Clark County John Doe's DNA points us to Henry Lovelace and the wanted poster with that description points us to Walt Cairns. So Logically, that would mean that Walt Cairns and Joseph Henry Lovelace were the same person. And with, with all the other evidence, it just it just added up, and it was it was a big puzzle piece of a timeline to put together, and it was an excellent team effort with everybody working together to do that. What else did you learn about Henry through that process? 
Well, we learned that he was married once before and that he, that his, uh, his first wife sought a divorce on grounds of uh, failure to provide an abandonment. And we're pretty sure that he didn't show up for the court date for that. So that clearly was true in that case. Um, he married Agnes in 1905 and they had four children together. And, um, then things started getting really exciting for him when he started bootlegging. He was a bootlegger. Uh, there's several pretty exciting newspaper articles that exist about him getting chased down by the cops and dumping his booze in the river. There's a really exciting one about that. He was arrested at least two times for that. He may have murdered one or two other people. He may have been a horse thief. <laughs> and um, it's, uh, there's, there's one other, hold on, yeah, stutters here. The, the, uh, the whole thing about breaking out of jail, that was another thing that helped us put the pieces together to show that Henry and Walt Cairns were the same person. They had the same MO when they escaped jail. He was saw out of the bars with a saw hidden in his shoes. And he did this more than once. (laughs) I'm sorry. I was just trying to picture like how that would work, you know, like I better keep my saw in my shoe in case I get arrested. But I guess if you're stealing horses and dumping booze in the river, you might want to keep the saw on you. Yeah, there's there's something to be said for the the premeditation there. (laughs) He was planning ahead, clearly. He would... uh, Oh, go ahead. He he also uh, lived near a train depot uh, at the time of the at the time of the murder, and they found him crawling under the train to escape. Um, there's a possibility that th- there's there's a an article about him uh, somehow stopping a train to escape and then getting caught and then sawing through the bars to escape again. He was very creative. Sounds like you guys did a lot of research into this. Can you talk to me about some of the challenges that you encountered there? Well, one of the biggest challenges was, was one of the biggest challenges was that there was actually a headstone already in place for Joseph Henry Loveless in Payson City Cemetery in Payson, Utah. This threw us off at first because, you know, if somebody has a headstone, you would naturally assume they were buried there. Um, the find a grave had a death date for him, and it was assumed that it, it was assumed that he must have died at the same time as Agnes. That was the family story that was perpetuated, and that was what was put on his find-a-grave profile. What we ended up having to do was one of our volunteers called the cemetery to have them pull the records, and they found out that there was never any interment there. A headstone had been placed probably at the time the plot was bought. They probably bought them as a, as a batch and got a good discount on it. He had a stone there with no death date carved on the actual stone, but there was no record of any interment. So uh, there was no body in that, in that grave. So that was important for us to do the legwork to find out. If we hadn't checked on that, we might still be doing this. Because, you know, you assume somebody has a headstone, they're, they're going to be buried there. But we know all about cenotaphs because of um, Civil War research. There's a lot of cenotaphs for Civil War soldiers whose bodies were either never found or were buried closer to where they died and their family wanted to put a a headstone near where the other family members are. So taking that into account, we we worked that out and and checked on it. And boy, am I glad we did. Um, Other challenges that we faced were uh, perpetuation of some family stories that 
implied that Henry Lovelace had died at the same time as Agnes and they were murdered by the same person, but we never found any, any death record for him. There's a very clear, very precise death record for Agnes that is very detailed and there was no such thing for him. So we assumed that since there wasn't one for him, when there was such a good one for her, that he didn't die then. Um, and then we found a second family story um, that was a completely different tale of what had happened to Agnes. And it was clear that there was some uh, some confusion of facts as things went on. He also, Henry had a brother that also died a year before by getting trampled by a horse. And the record for his death was often misattributed to Joseph Henry because they had similar initials. So we had to pick that apart. Um, other challenges were that um, there, there's, a, there's a problem called endogamy, which is the practice of uh, marrying uh, between close, close intermarriage between families in a either geographically isolated or religious community. And it's, it's really common, but it can make the DNA hard to work with. So the combination of that plus the half relationships from the polygamy made it a little unpredictable, um, plus him being old. So here, here's, here's a fun one for you that I haven't had the opportunity to really explain to anybody. So typically when you're working on a, when you're working on one of these cases, the farthest number of removals you're going to have for the DNA cousins is maybe one or two. Meaning a, a removal is how many more generations there are between the common ancestors of, of two people. So let's say that your grandfather is my third great-grandfather. That would be two removals. That's, that's the farthest we've ever had to deal with. These, the closest we had, were three removals. And that gives plenty of time for those other generations to marry into other lines that were also related to Henry on the other side of his family. So it looked like he might have had parents who were related to each other, but they weren't because descendants of his cousins on both sides married each other later. <laughs> I'm just kind of imagining trying to pick through that. <laughs> oh, the... yeah, that was that was a lot of work. <laughs> but eventually you did and you narrowed in on this couple, Henry and Agnes, and it seems like their relationship has a lot to do with the story, I think, and how it unfolded. Can you talk to us about what happened between them? Well, um, we know that they were together long enough to have four children, and there's some evidence of her also being involved in bootlegging. They were probably working together. Um, she also had an alias. She went by Ada Smith in town. So they both used false names and were doing illegal activities together while living in a tent in the outskirts of town is, is what it says in, in one of the articles that was just where they were living. It was near, it was near a stable and near a, a train depot. So two things he's really familiar with, but um, what we know about what happened was that some neighbors had overheard an argument between them and she went out a dance. There were several dance halls in town. She went to a dance and to eat cake. And he didn't, he, he apparently didn't like that. Um, 
we don't have a whole lot more about what really went down other than that uh, some of the children were there when she died. And, or, and, and one of the, one of her sons found her. So, but he was, he was pretty young. So his account is a little fuzzy. There's, there was another clue that we found in the process of, of researching what had happened to Agnes that helped us piece together where, um, that Henry was the same person as Walt Cairns and J.C. Smith. At Agnes's funeral, one of her children is quoted as saying, Papa was never in jail for very long and he'll soon be out. And that he had killed a man. So with those, with those two facts in mind, and knowing that Henry Lovelace had done those things, that also helped us to figure out and, and really like settle on them being the same person. It must have been really different to look into Henry because, of course, he is a victim, like most other does, but it must have been different knowing that you're also identifying a murderer as well as a victim. Can you talk to us about that? Well, yeah, I, I, have, some, uh, I have some personally strangely conflicting feelings about that because I, I've, I've said before, and I'll, I'll say it again, that when we're working on, when we're working on doe cases like this, most of us who are forensic genealogists got our start doing this for ourselves or for family. And so it, it sort of manifests as kind of an act of love. So we automatically have, you know, some, some pretty positive feelings towards anybody that we're working on. And given how he was found, you know, at first we're like, oh, this poor guy, he's, he's you know, dismembered in a cave. That's awful. Who did this to him? And it's still awful who did this to him. but it it comes along with this knowledge that when someone is unidentified, when someone is a John or Jane Doe, and you're working to figure out who they are, you have no idea who they are until you start doing the research. You don't get to pick and choose based on um, who's the most needing of identification, who's the most unfortunate, because everyone is deserving of identification. And that's an important thing to point out here. Um, so how it's different is that I, he's just as important as anybody else that I've worked on. If not, um, in a, in a different way, because we've learned so much from doing this. So in spite of the fact that he was a terrible person, we have learned a lot about anthropology. We have learned how to up our game with forensic genealogy. We have learned something about American history that we didn't know before. And going forward, this is going to affect a lot of different fields. So we have him to thank for that. And maybe this is like, not to get too philosophical or anything, but maybe this is his, uh, uh, his, his way of um, taking penance for what he did. We get to study him and learn since he was working so hard to not be found. Stress, sleep, recovery, whether we're in the gym or at work, these things shape how we perform. One thing we've both added to our daily routine and it's helped make a noticeable difference for us is Nucalm. Brooke told me about her Nucalm experience this week. 
She's been using it while her baby naps. So for her, the 50-minute reboot session is perfect. It's a little time she can carve out of her day to relax, de-stress, and well, reboot. By the time the baby's awake, Brooke feels refreshed and ready for the rest of her day too. It's imperative to your health and happiness to be able to manage stress and not be managed by it. New Calm gives you the power and control to relax and recharge anywhere, anytime. Own the day with New Calm. New Calm is the only stress management system of its kind, clinically proven in over 1 million sessions to improve your sleep, reduce your stress, and boost your recovery without drugs and side effects. The New Calm system uses cutting-edge neuroscience and consists of three non-invasive and non-pharmaceutical items all of which are included in your monthly subscription that costs less than a daily cup of coffee. The whole process is easy to use and to work into your daily routine to achieve better sleep, reduction in stress, and boost in recovery. Do what we did. Own the day with NuCalm. We have a special link set up specifically for our listeners. Go to fallnewcalm.com and get 50% off your 30-day subscription of NewCalm and their money-back guarantee. That's fallnucalm.com. Fallnucalm.com. So you just mentioned that you'd learned some things about American history along the way. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so as, a, as, as genealogists, we end up learning a lot about the times and places in, in which the ancestors that we're researching lived. And I always learn something new whenever I'm working on any case, but I know more about Idaho now than I know about the state I grew up in. Um, so there's that. Um, I learned a lot about the prohibition era, the prohibition era that I didn't know, such as I knew when it had been enacted on a federal level, but I didn't know for how long before then the local option law was, was a thing. Local option was the opportunity that individual counties had to determine if they were going to be a dry county or not. And this is why before, like, well before the instatement of federal level prohibition, we had bootleggers. This was going on from the 1910s to 1916 when he probably died. Um, and that's really early. That's, that's 10 years before. He, he might have even been moonshining before that. We don't know. And so, it's interesting to me to show the progression throughout history of how things came to a head and came to that moment. And um, so that's, that's definitely something I learned about like how long before federal prohibition, there was actually a problem that was attempting to be addressed by County specific legislature. I also learned a lot about, um, this is this is going to sound a little weird, but I, I've I've learned a lot about uh, old hotels. <laughs> he worked at a hotel, and and his family lived in it for a while. He took care of the horses. Like I, 
I, I didn't previously put the pieces together and, and think about how hotels in the 19th century would also have to have stables, but they did. And that's really interesting. So, you know, it's just little facts like that, but also um, just, uh, you know, political and social climate of the time. It'll, it'll be really helpful contextually later on when I work on other cases that will lead me to this place. And it's just building on what I already knew. And it's just really fun every single time we find something new that we didn't know before. I actually wanted to ask you, uh, in addition to that, about the composite that was made for Loveless, because my understanding is that you actually made that facial composite, right? Yes, I did. Can you talk to us about what it entailed and in general, why composites are produced? Sure. Um, So how I did that was we had a bunch of family photos of his close relatives, but we tried so hard to find a photo of him because it, it really matters for there to be a face for people to connect to on, on multiple levels. People relate to faces. And if there's an image attached with a story, people will want to read the story. That's just how it is. So we, we knew that. And one of, the, one of the exciting parts for us as forensic genealogists, I, I can't speak for the entire team, but I know for most of us, we love finding the photo. We love seeing the photo of, of the person in life, how they were, and bringing that back as, as, uh, as restoration to them. And in this case, we didn't get that. And I personally felt really frustrated by this. I had worked on some forensic art before for some other cases um, for both the DNA Doe Project and for other law enforcement. And I'd never tried to make an image for someone who didn't have a head. I'd never tried to make a composite based on other people's descriptions. But I understood on a fundamental level how it worked, similar to how one would make an age progression for someone who was kidnapped as a baby based on their, based on photos of their relatives. So taking that into account and taking into account that we had a physical description on the wanted poster, I just tried it and it ended up working. Um, and I, I used the, the family photos that we found that were just uploaded to family search and uh, composited different pieces of each of each face that were facing from the same angle. I've actually got a video of this on my YouTube if, if you'd like to check it out. Oh, yeah. Of the process of how I did it. So the reason why I felt it was important to make this composite, not just because I really needed it, was because when we release an identification, people want to see that photo and there wasn't one and I knew that given the story and given how crazy it was and how exciting it was that if there was an image to go along with it it would really help carry that and uh, give sort of an anchor to the whole thing and I just had to make it really clear that it was a composite image that it was you know not meant to be an actual likeness and and the, the sheriff approved it and he actually sent me a photo of the target tester that we used to confirm who was the 87-year-old living grandson of, of Joseph Henry Loveless. And it looked really similar. It kind of spooked me. I had no idea what he looked like until he sent me that picture. And I guess I did a pretty good job. So I guess it's good enough. <laughs> I've seen it everywhere, and it's so interesting because I've never come across a composite that was done after an identification. 
yeah, I don't think anybody's done that before. I consider it a necessity for my own sanity because I needed a photo. And then there were other reasons why it was important to have also. But mostly I was frustrated and I was like, you know what? I know how to do this. I'm just going to do it. And I did. This question is probably something you could answer all day long. But what have you learned from this case that you'll be able to use in your future cases? Basically to not take every single scientific examination of remains as a hard truth. We'd previously learned this with the bell in the well because her, um, her age estimate was pretty broad and we thought that she was going to be somewhere in the middle, but she was actually a fair amount older than the, the top end of that age estimate. So we knew that. And in this case, the, the postmortem interval was, was hazy. Um, so we have learned to have an open mind about the information that we're given and to question it and try on other things for size. Um, and it's good to have a guideline and, and a point of reference to start at, but if it, it's okay to go outside of the lines is what we've learned. It, sometimes the answer is just outside of the lines because we're still learning. It's an estimate, you know, you, it might be off. And uh, something else that I've learned is that the tools that we have are advancing so quickly that our understanding of how to use them is actually taking a while to keep up. Um, for example, the, the, the fact that we were able to sequence 103-year-old remains, extract and sequence 103-year-old remains in the first place and have it look like somebody who um, just sent in an ancestry test. Like, it was amazing that we got that kind of quality. We've learned something about nature, about how preservative the caves in Idaho are, apparently. Um, <laughs> and what I'll be able to use in cases is a more open mind and a more broad sense of what to do with the case information we're provided and when to play with it and make it be a, a little less exact and be okay with that. And I think that's important. So speaking of how much and how quickly things are moving, I think our audience knows that DNA identifications are in the news pretty much weekly whether we're talking about does getting back their names or arrest of suspects. What do you as an expert in the field wish the general public knew about the work that happens before the headline comes out? Well, what I really wish people knew was that what we're doing is really, um, okay, I'm, I'm going to, this is going to be a, a multi-step answer here. So the first wish the general public knew was that if they provide their DNA data to genealogical databases where we are able to access them, the methods by which we build out family trees for DNA cousins are totally unobtrusive and are completely harmless for every individual who chooses to upload. Like so many people have the opportunity to help solve a case and so so many people who help solve a case by providing their DNA will never know about it because we don't need to ask 
them for anything. We don't need to do anything with them other than look at how their DNA compares. Um, and I, I think that's important to know. Is like it really doesn't. It it it. I I personally don't think that it hurts anyone to share your DNA with with law enforcement for this purpose because it's not going to negatively impact you. Um, the other thing that I wish the public knew about what happens is that a lot of us who work on these cases are doing it because of, um, of, because of, I would say a moral obligation almost, but it's more than that. Um, we're doing this out of love and it's, it's actually hard to stop. It's hard to take breaks sometimes. Like you can hear the numbers when we do our press conferences and we say we have this many volunteers working this number of hours for this long. Like those are just numbers. You can't really visualize what that actually looks like. If I were to try to calculate the amount of time that I actually spend working on these dough cases, I would have to have every waking moment of my life count towards the hours that I worked on it because I'm always thinking about it and I'm always thinking about what can I do to make this better? What can I do to get better at this job and identify people faster and give people answers faster? Like this particular puzzle piece that's not lining up right, why isn't it? Is it something I'm doing wrong or do I not have en enough data? Um, this is constant. Like it's really nonstop and the more cases we get to work on, the better we'll get at it, and the more everyone will benefit, and the more people who perpetrate crimes will know you can't just erase people, and the more people who are missing loved ones will understand how to not only um, report their missing people to law enforcement and get them on NamUs, but also know um, that there are people looking to help. And I, I, I hope that made sense. But what I want the general public to know is that we're working really hard and it's because we care about everyone and we need their help to contribute. What listeners can do to help is just um, upload your DNA to GEDmatch, upload your DNA to Family Tree DNA and DNA Solves, opt into law enforcement matching. There's a website that I've set up at help.forensicgenealogytraining.org that has instructions on how to download your raw DNA and upload it to all of the databases that we have access to. Um, that's if you've taken an ancestry test or 23andMe or MyHeritage or any of those. Um, if you haven't and you are able to, please do. If you're even remotely curious about where your genetics come from, if you're remotely curious about um, finding new cousins to talk to, it's really fun. Or even if you don't want to and you just want to help, um, just get get a test, get tested, and, and upload and help us out. Because we can't guess who's going to be the person who helps us solve a case. There's no way. We, we only have the data that we have have to rely on. And it's not always the closest match that helps us make an ID. We've, we've made an ID using, um, using like a tiny segment from a sixth cousin to confirm something. So every little bit helps. And if you're inspired to help, what you should do is 
definitely get a DNA test and upload to GEDmatch, Family Tree DNA, and DNA Solve. So we've done that, and I hope our listeners will too. I'd like to close out by asking you a question that we didn't previously discuss, um, but I was hoping that you could tell our listeners about the podcast that you and Lee have started. Sure. Um, Lee and I are making a, we, we've, uh, Lee and I are producing a podcast uh, centered around our work with the Transdo Task Force, which is our uh, grassroots group that works to find Doe cases in which the unidentified person may have been transgender or gender variant. Um, we've started a podcast based around this work where we discuss cases and case updates. We talk to professionals in the field about how to address concerns of gender variants and how to reconcile that with the way that unidentified decedents are categorized. Um, we've had a number of we've had a couple of really good episodes lately like we have one on forensic art we have one on case updates we have one on like how we do searches for for does and we're open to suggestions for for other topics too um it's uh it's it's a meeting of uh forensic genealogy true crime and lgbt issues in in one go and we'd like to cover as much ground as possible and also reach out to people who need to hear this. And we're, we're very interested in gray areas and exploring those. Thanks again to Anthony Redgrave for joining us. And do check out the Transdo Task Force podcast, which you'll find linked in the show notes. If you want to learn more about the team's work on the Henry Loveless case, there's a great Atlantic article you can read and also some excellent coverage from the CBC. This episode was recorded and produced in January of 2020. We wanted to add a note for our listeners who are hearing it now in June. If you're interested in supporting justice-centered organizations that need help right now, we've gathered a list on our blog in the news section and we'll be continually updating it. We'd like to thank all the listeners who've taken the time to support our sponsors, leave us reviews, or support our show directly on Patreon or via PayPal. We couldn't do it without you. Special thanks, as always, to Angie Dodd. The Fall Line is created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove and is produced and mastered by Maura Curry. Our research assistants are Haley Gray, Kim Fritz, and Jess Watford. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon. Theme music is by RJR. Find our merch in the Exactly Right Podswag store.